0: It's the Ambiguously Blind podcast with your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes.
1: Hey, hey, greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in and subscribing. Be sure to connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com, or if you're like me and don't want to spell ambiguously all the time, you can go to amblind.com, A-M-B-L-I-N-D.com. There you will find... Our social media links, as well as merch store, Patreon, and product links that we talk about on the podcast. You will also find episode transcripts like this one. We are going to hear from Francesca Testa, a fellow meningitis survivor. She has an incredible story of overcoming and adapting to life on the other side of meningitis and how the meningitis experience turned her into an advocate and put that into action. Hey, Francesca. Thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, John, for having me.
1: We have a lot in common because we're both meningitis survivors.
0: Yeah, we definitely are and, and, and blessed to be here and, and be able to, you know, to be able to share our stories.
1: Yeah, we are. You were, let's see, you were in high school when, when you got meningitis. Is that right?
0: I was, yeah. I was a uh, senior in high school. Um, so I was uh, 17 just before my 18th birthday i was you know quite the uh, the social one in high school i was also an athlete um i was a swimmer and so that pretty much took up most of my time and you know competitive athletics and theater and you know, just being able to, you know, be a normal teenager and hang out with your friends. And, um, you know, this is definitely not something that when you're 17, um, that you think of something like meningitis or, you know, you even think about getting sick, you know, you, you hear stories, but you think that it can never happen to you.
1: Had you ever heard of meningitis?
0: Not really. I mean, I think I used to watch a lot of medical shows on TV. Um, I think house was actually my favorite show at the time. And, you know, you kind of hear all these big words, but it was never really something I knew much about. Never really heard anything from my parents about it. I hadn't talked to any of my doctors about it either. You know, at that age, I kind of just went in for my visits, got whatever shots at that point they recommended. But it, it wasn't anything that you heard in in conversation or, or anything that I really knew about.
1: You're a pretty average high school student. I mean you're an athlete, so that makes you a little different than average. But from a health standpoint, you're you're healthy, you're ten feet tall and bulletproof, kinda like I felt like I was, and meningitis is nothing on your radar. You're going to the doctor, you're taking your vitamins or whatever, and everything's pretty much normal, right?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely something that, you know, you don't wake up one day and expect to you know, have a, a life changing event, you know, you're healthy, active, um, doing everything, you know, that, that, that you're supposed to be doing, um, at 17. So,
1: and you've stated that you were a swimmer. I think you were a pretty good swimmer. Is that true?
0: Well, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I was competitive. Um, it was definitely something where at that point in my life as a senior in high school, you're kind of looking forward to college. And, you know, I had been recruited to quite a few schools um, and had, you know, decided upon the school that I was going to go to um, for swimming, being able to be a scholarship swimmer after contracting meningitis. I mean, that, that really kind of changed the, the course of my future.
1: Okay. So, I mean, I played basketball and soccer and other sports in high school myself, but there weren't any colleges looking um, for me to come play for them, especially on a scholarship level. So, I mean, you may, you may want to downplay it a little bit, but it sounds to me like you were, you were obviously very active, as you mentioned, and, and pretty good at swimming.
0: That, that was definitely, yes. Most of, most of my high school. Yeah. Most of my high school life.
1: Okay. And then everything was fine until it wasn't. You got meningitis, bacterial meningitis. When was that?
0: It was April of 2006. Um, It was actually right after Easter, right after my family had, had celebrated. And again, senior in high school, you know, you're getting to the end of your senior year, you're looking forward to prom and, you know, whatever senior trips. And of course, spending the summer with your friends before everybody goes off to college. And, you know, I had been feeling a little bit. Um, but you know, nothing that was very severe. And then one morning I woke up and I went from being a totally healthy, active teenager to, you know, basically fighting for my life at that point. And similar to a lot of others who have bacterial meningitis, most of my symptoms started out just as you would think with the seasonal flu. Um, I had a fever, I was tired, I had body aches, I was a little bit nauseous, and you know, you kind of just pass it off as again. I'm 17. Maybe I have a cold. Maybe I have the flu. It wasn't until I started to get a very severe headache and an extremely high fever, where I was almost at about 105, where you know we thought to call my uh, my physician. Um, I went in there on a Saturday afternoon, um, they took my temperature, they sat me down, listened to my lungs and pretty much said, okay, you know, we think it's the flu, if it doesn't get any better, you know, maybe we'll go for some chest x-rays next week and, and, you know, send her home, give her some Gatorade and, you know, kind of rest, take a nap. So we, of course, my mom brought me back home. And later that afternoon, I mean, within hours, I deteriorated rapidly the fever never went away. I had a headache pretty much unlike anything I had had in my life. I had had migraines, you know, we've all probably had a regular headache, but this this is definitely different. You can't move your neck. You almost feel like the whole top half of your body is is almost paralyzed in pain. And I also had a unique symptom actually where it's very difficult to associate Actually, what you are seeing or thinking with what's coming out of your mouth. So I would see my mom and I would call her my dad. Or I'd see my dad and I'd call him my mom. And I remember asking my mom and saying, Dad, can you go get my prom dress? Dad, can you go get my prom dress? You know, and and of course my parents at that point were extremely worried.
1: Yeah, I would guess so. That's that's odd. I've not heard that one before.
0: Yeah, um, and it's it's very odd because you actually know it's happening. Um, it almost feels like you're hallucinating, but you're still lucid. And they definitely attributed that because my fever at that point was still about 105, which anyone, you know, children, teens, adults, having a fever that high can cause hallucinations. It can cause visions. It can cause things like that. But again, you know, we had the reassurance from my physician at that point. Um, you know, again, she probably has the flu. So I went to bed that night. And that was the last thing I remember before waking up in the hospital, um, attached to the ventilator about two weeks later. The next morning, my mom came in. She saw I hadn't drank my Gatorade, um, tried to wake me up, and she couldn't. So, of course, you call the ambulance. That's the first thing you think of. But what's the first thing the ambulance driver thought of was actually, oh, she's 17 years old. Maybe it's drugs. Um, and that's the first thing the ambulance driver said to my parents. And of course, my parents know me, again, I'm a healthy teenager, I'm super, you know, active, I'm an athlete, you know, it, it definitely wasn't drugs. And then one of the ambulance drivers actually was the first one to notice. I had purple spots all over my body. From the top of my hairline all the way down to my toes. And as soon as he saw them, he knew that it was something way more serious than they, you know, had thought I had. So they rushed me to the first hospital. And again, you know, this is 2006. So of course, you know, some hospitals had some, you know, infectious disease protocols, um, but actually, really widespread protocols didn't really come up until post 2006. Um, and actually even some until the Ebola crisis um, just a few years ago. So when they brought me to the hospital, they knew something was wrong. You saw them put on masks, and then they actually put me in a closet because they didn't have an infectious disease room. Um, They didn't know what it was, but out of precaution, they did the spinal tap. Um, They saw that it was most likely meningitis, and I was airlifted um, to Yale New Haven Hospital in Connecticut because the hospital couldn't treat me. Um, and when I got there, the physicians told my parents I had about a 20% chance of survival. And this was at about 10am the next day. So you figure all of this happened in less than 24 hours, which is why it's so scary for parents, you know, especially of, of not just high school, you know, where I'm home with my parents, but for college students, you know, who are away from their families. And, you know, I know that's, um, you know similar to your story too i think john right where you were away at college when you contracted meningitis
1: yes i was about 250 miles away from my uh, my family when it happened so my my story has several unique and and i think miraculous twists and turns that get me to the hospital and then several things that happened from there too but yeah i also was thought to be um, on drugs i had a a, a friend of mine found me unconscious in my in my apartment and called 911 and they originally the ambulance came for me and they originally thought it was drugs too and they were pretty adamant with my friend that you know if you can tell us what he's taken we can you know we can fix it or make it better and the guy I I'd known the guy for about 2 years and knowing him pretty well. And he's like, I don't think he takes drugs. You know, I mean, I may, maybe, maybe there's a dark side to John that I don't know. But yeah, obviously it wasn't true. But they, they thought it, it, it looked like an overdose. And I heard the same thing with some other people that I've talked to about meningitis uh, stories about the diagnosis of, of what it was. And, and drugs usually comes up because it's, it's at an age where I guess that's, uh, you know, experimental time for kids. And, and it happens pretty often. But certainly wasn't the case for me. And it wasn't the case for you either
0: no and and you know I think that's also why you know education is so important, and you know being able to help you know have others recognize the signs and symptoms and and thankfully your roommate you know was you know kind of got ahead of it and called nine one one um you know and in other instances you know people haven't gotten to the hospital, um, you know, quick enough or or not had that 911 call being made. And so, you know, it's definitely tough to be away from your parents, you know, when something like that happens. But, you know, thankfully, my parents also recognized it and called 911, you know, and talking to them, of course, after the fact, you know, you, you kind of get that story because you're unconscious, you don't really know what's happening. Um, you know, but of course, they don't also tell me, what it feels like to be told you know that your child had potentially a you know twenty percent chance of surviving through the night. And I don't think any parent or any family you know would ever want to hear that. And you know, I was in a coma for about two weeks, and you know I was intubated. I mean, thankfully, the nurses and the doctors, you know, at the hospital that I was at, Um, you know, we're able to do another spinal tap, recognize exactly what that purple rash was and know that they had to treat it in an emergent way and with different treatments in order to hopefully stop, you know, the spread of it. And, um, I had what's called meningococcemia or septicemia, where, um, the bacteria invades your bloodstream, which is essentially what causes those big purple, um, spots. And in others who have amputations due to meningitis, it's usually because it almost looks like a necrosis and it cuts off the blood flow to your extremities, sometimes even your nose, the tips of your fingers, you know, your feet, your hands, all of that. And that was, you know, their first thought was, you know, we might have to amputate her right leg. Um, so in addition to trying to save my life, they were also trying to, you know, save a 17 year old athlete's limbs at the same time. And, you know, I'm just thankful that they acted quickly you know, and that I'm still here to be able to share my story. But even after two weeks in the hospital and waking up and still being alive, the recovery from having bacterial meningitis is something that's almost as difficult as, you know, the time in the hospital.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that statement. For me, I was in a coma for about seven days. So uh, I I remember nothing of that. But the the fight that our bodies are going through during that time period is is Tremendous, but from from my vantage point, not not knowing any of that to the waking up and the realization that life is significantly different today than the last time I remember going to sleep. You know, the the road ahead was was challenging, um, to say the least. But before we get to that, do you have notes, or did your family or people take notes, and uh, recount things that happened in the hospital? Do you have any? Anything about your hospital visit during that two weeks? Things that were happening. You, you obviously weren't given a very good chance of survival, and then there were some other things that that may have been happening to you with the amputations and other organ failures and things like that. Did, did any of those things?
0: Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, unfortunately, you know, it definitely took a significant toll on my parents. My mom wasn't able to come to the hospital for a lot of the time, um, and I do have two younger brothers. And so, you know, she stayed home with them. And my dad did spend a majority of the time in the hospital with me. But, you know, while I was in the hospital, you know, fighting for, you know, my life and, you know, hopefully not having any of these amputations, I mean, my dad's been able to recount um, some things for me. And, And one of the things is that because I was 17... There were a couple of treatments at the time that were only available for those who were over the age of eighteen. Luckily, the hospital I was at, um, you know, is a teaching hospital, so they actually had quite a few clinical um, clinical trials. They had a lot of different medications that they had been trying. They had some fellows that were actually working in different infectious disease areas in the hospital. So I was lucky because I was right at the cusp of kind of hitting that 18 mark. So um, my dad was actually the one that consented to being able to use some of those experimental treatments on me. And knowing that, of course, you know, when you're told your child only has a 20% chance of survival, you're going to try anything that you can. And luckily at, at, um, at one point, you know, the treatments actually stopped the, um, septic shock that my body had gone into. And although it doesn't get rid of kind of the damage that's done from, um, the bacteria. So, you know, those scars or any of the tissue death, it doesn't get rid of that, but it stops it from spreading. So they were able to save my leg Um, And the rash was uh, eventually stopped because of that. They weren't able to wake me up from the coma. um, And it took uh, quite a few different folks to come in. And I remember my parents telling me that they called my friends and family members. And um, I guess probably the most interesting part of the story is they eventually called my swim coach, actually, to come down to the hospital to see if, if he could talk to me and see if, you know, that would... That would kind of wake me up a little bit and hopefully, you know, bring me up and and off of the ventilator. And uh, you don't really think your swim coach or your coach that's yelling at you every single week in practice is the one voice that you would respond to while you're in the coma. But it actually was Um, he, you know, they brought him down and he sat with me for a couple hours. And eventually that's the first person I remember seeing when I woke up. Um, was uh, actually my swim coach, and so you know, once I woke up, of course, you know you 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 don't really realize what happened, but at the same time, you do, um, and it's a very weird feeling to know that your life has changed, but at the same time, feel like nothing's changed. Um, so, I mean, I'm grateful for all the treatment there, but you know, what people don't also think about is what was happening to everybody else in your life while you were in the hospital. And when you have an infectious disease, you have something like bacterial meningitis, it doesn't just affect you. It affects your family, your friends, everybody that you came in contact with. So, you know, being on an athletic team, Now, all of the athletes on the team, they all have to be treated, Um, and they're typically treated with a drug called Cipro, which is a prophylactic treatment for people who've been exposed. They have to go back into your school. Um, I mentioned that I got sick right after Easter. We had seen my entire extended family for the holiday, so everybody from my grandparents all the way down to my cousins, who were only about five years old at the time. So I'm fighting for my life my parents are there trying to make some tough decisions at the same time. You know, I have my siblings that they're worried about. Um, the community is worried, not just about me, but also about other people because, you know, we don't want to have a community spread. So, um, you know, so we have some notes to be able to kind of go back and compare on. And I, one of the things that I really wish I knew, um, and you don't think about this until afterwards is I wish I knew what strain of meningitis I had, because as you start to learn more and you want to educate others and you, you know, want to be able to spread the message, you know, learning about what strain you had, um, would be, uh, invaluable to that. Um, but in certain instances, if you're treated very quickly, um, with broad range antibiotics, which some people are when they enter the hospital and the diagnosis isn't yet clear that can actually impede the results of being able to serotype the um, spinal fluid when you get a spinal tap. So because they had, um, they had given me the broad range antibiotics at the first hospital I, I went to, um, they weren't able to serotype me um, when I was airlifted to the second hospital. Um, they do suspect that I had one of the serotypes, A, C, W, or Y, um, and not B. Um, and there are five total serotypes for um, meningococcal disease.
1: Yeah, so there's a few things about that that were kind of interesting. I think, um, I don't know that I wasn't, I don't think I knew the type either, but I, from what I've been led to believe, it seems like it was B, you were you mentioned you were at a, a teaching hospital i think you said it was at yale there right? mm-hmm. I was also at a university hospital uh it was the where i was going to school it was texas tech university in lubbock texas so that that was also a learning hospital so there were lots of other things going on at the hospital for that type of stuff too so you know that's interesting you mentioned that it kind of got me thinking that maybe there's something to that maybe maybe that you know played a played a role in in helping understand what was going on with me as well. And also you mentioned that you had to go through what I think we would probably now refer to as contact tracing, going back through all the people that you've interacted with in the last 24, 48, four or five days or whatever the, whatever the time period was. So the same thing happened for me too. Uh, I was involved in um, intramural basketball and and we played soccer a lot. And so there was teams and I had, I was in a fraternity, people that I went to meetings with and just, you know, hung out with. those are a typical social guy. So I, there was potentially lots of people that that had come in contact with me. And I think there was, I don't know if people were freaked out about it because I, I just don't know that. But I know that if I were in that situation as being somebody that can come in contact with somebody that had COVID, let's say, I think I would be pretty nervous about, you know, what I know about COVID now, what what things can happen to that. So I'd be very interested in, in getting something to, um, you know, help stem the the tide from that.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's, it's really interesting to see, of course, you know, in the environment we're living in now with COVID and thinking back as to what happened, you know, with us, um, and how, you know, that, um, and how that played out in our communities as well. Um, you know, and just our circle of friends. Um, and I think, being, and I think it's it's hard for physicians and, you know, people have asked me before as, you know, well, you went to the doctor and they misdiagnosed you, but you know, what a lot of medical professionals, you know, go through, they don't necessarily see a case of bacterial meningitis ever while they're practicing. You know, it it isn't uh, a very common thing. You know, we're not, it's like, not like we're spreading the the common cold to each other you know, it is something that spreads with close contact. And although we know it's more prevalent in certain age groups, again, still some nurses, doctors, even some infectious disease specialists may not see advanced cases of things like bacterial meningitis in their career. So, you know, I don't I don't personally ever look back and wonder why I wasn't diagnosed, you know, the day before. I just know that, I think it's important as survivors, as both you and I are, to continue, like I said, to educate others, but also to work with people like nurses and physicians and even medical students in our experiences, so that if they ever do see somebody um, come across them in a clinic or in an emergency room, you know, they think twice about the symptoms that they're coming in with. And, you know, hopefully that rapid treatment can stop the progression of the disease because it's so fast which is really what sets it apart.
1: Yeah, it's tremendously fast and I think you're right the education for for people and just spreading the awareness of it but also with the medical professionals just so that they know that that's you know they've all been through countless years of medical experience but because of the rareness of meningitis you you just want it to be top of mind when certain things come in. And look the way they do that let's not rule this out or let's remember remember about meningitis before we move on to other things did you know anything like i think i've already asked you this but you didn't know much about meningitis you didn't probably know anybody that that had had meningitis
0: no i hadn't and um you know i do think it's a point to make sure people know that i wasn't vaccinated at the time when i contracted bacterial meningitis the vaccine was approved, the initial one, the men ACWY vaccine that was approved in 2005, I believe by the FDA and I contracted it in 2006. And so there wasn't really a lot of talk about vaccines then, just like, you know, there wasn't a lot of talk about meningitis. So you kind of just know, okay, I'm going to go get a physical before I go to college. And, you know, they'll, they'll give me whatever I need at that point, And, you know, it, it I I wasn't, you know, vaccinated. So had I been vaccinated, this may have been, you know, preventable. And so, um, you know, to your point, too, about going to the hospitals and having medical professionals recognize it is that, you know, I also want parents and teenagers to know that there are two different vaccines, And that just because you have, you might have the men ACWY, the one we normally think of, you know, that's been mainstream over the last, you know, more than a decade, is that in recent years, we now have the FDA approved meningitis B vaccine. And, you know, I know you mentioned potentially being men B um, and contracting it in college and men B is the prevalent strain typically in college outbreaks and college cases, Um, You know, so I don't want a parent to, you know, walk into a hospital and be like, you know, but my child's protected, though. My child's protected. And they didn't know about that MenB vaccine. So I think that that component is super important, too.
1: Okay, so now we know you have meningitis. You're out of the hospital. You're probably a wreck and trying to understand some pretty basic human functions or being What was life like after the hospital, or maybe even during the hospital, the road back home, basically?
0: Um, It was definitely uh, very tough. And it's hard for someone who is pretty active in their regular life to have to kind of take a step back. And um, even though I I woke up and I was off the ventilator, um, it didn't mean that the recovery stopped there. Um, And I think you know, it's really important to talk about because although we know it's a relatively rare disease and, you know, we don't necessarily talk about even if you survive, you know, what long-term effects do you survive with? And so while I was still in the hospital recovering, you know, I couldn't walk. I wasn't able to do anything for myself. I couldn't shower. I couldn't get up to walk down the hall. Um, and I had an extreme headache, um, pretty much 24 seven. And, uh, when they finally were able to send me home, you know, I still couldn't walk. Um, and I think that that was probably the biggest, the biggest challenge. Um, you know, I slept on a couch on the first floor of our house for probably about two months. And, uh, I had a visiting nurse and physical therapist come into my house every other day. And you just lose the ability to do even the smallest things for yourself. Besides the pain of, you know, the recurring headaches and, you know, being able to to walk again after having some of that muscle tissue die from the septicemia, um, you also have the mental side of things as well. Um, and it's kind of coming to terms with how your life is changing. So you have the physical effects of coming home to recover, but you also have the um, mental and emotional effects of coming home to recover. And so, you know, I think in that moment, I kind of realized that, you know, I, I don't think my future plans are going to quite, um, quite end up the way that the way that I had hoped a few weeks before. I spent pretty much, and again, I, I contracted it in April. I spent pretty much all of the summer, May through August, really just, learning how to walk, um, how to be able to, to even jog again and, and, um, you know, being able to, to do regular activities, you know, without, without tiring. Um, and it wasn't just the walking that I had to learn how to do again. Um, but bacterial meningitis also causes some cognitive effects and other physical effects. So I suffered some cognitive impairment, and some short-term memory also that I was dealing with at that time as well as some hearing and vision loss and at this point that's pretty much when I decided that I was going to stay home and I wasn't going to go away to college but I still wanted that to be my goal and I think that having the one thing that you love to do and that you are really looking forward to getting back to I think that that really pushes you to you know to put everything you have into your recovery and you know, I fought and I was able to come back and start with a different swim team um, at a at a local school. But I was able to do it, not at the level I was at before, but at least I was able to get back into the pool. And I think, I think that that's one of the things that really saved me during that initial recovery was at least having that one thing that you can work towards and that you know you're that that you love to do. It was never easy after that. Any sort of, any sort of rehab comes with setbacks, days where, you know, you feel like you can't, you just can't do it like everybody else can. And it's very frustrating. And when you're in college and you're a swimmer, you have a demanding schedule, just like any other sport. You have practice before school. You have school all day. Then you have practice after school. And it's just things like that, that, you know, you can't necessarily keep up with the same level that everyone's at. Um, and you got to keep working towards it. Um, And I know I mentioned some of the hearing and vision loss, but that impacts athletes greatly. I was never able to, um, hear the buzzer go off when we started races. Um, so I would have to look for the flash of light, um, that the starters let off. And so you kind of adapt to all of these things, but you, you never quite get over them. Um, and again, sometimes it's a, Uh, A day where it's a mental or emotional roadblock and other days it's a physical roadblock that, you know, you never anticipated.
1: Was it difficult to try to see the starter or I mean, did you did you perform lower than you expected because of those the start, basically?
0: Um, Until I was able to kind of adapt to my environment. Definitely. It also uh, it was also only affected one side of my body. So going into, you know, unfortunately, my stay at the hospital, um, I didn't have really any vision problems. I, I didn't have any hearing problems. Um, and so having it all um, on one side of your body definitely, uh, makes you kind of move and have to adapt to that. And so there were times where I couldn't hear the starter. I couldn't see the starter depending on where it was at the pool. There were also times where I couldn't see the wall, um, when I was doing flip turns or where I, um, if you, you know, as you're swimming, it also impacted me if part of my body was moving or turning in a certain way. And the right side of my body was the only side that was out of the water and you can't see the flags when you're swimming. So it definitely, um, took a lot of adapting, um, learning how to do stroke counts that other athletes didn't have to do. Um, learning that if you see a certain line on the bottom of the pool, you know, how many strokes you have until you get to the walls that you don't hit it. So it, it, it was definitely a disadvantage. Um, not being able to hear or see the starter at certain pools, Of course, also puts you at a disadvantage. And so going into college, you know, after coming off of a great senior year and not being at the level that you think you're gonna be at is very discouraging. And again, learning all the things that we learn after we have meningitis, that even though we survive, you know, it's it's also learning that had I had access to the vaccine at that point, again, it could have been prevented. And and um you know, but the one thing that I do try to drive home the point to is, is I do get asked, and and John, I don't know if you get this question is, you know, if you could go back, you know, would, would you change things or, you know, would you have done anything differently? And, you know, I think with infectious disease, you can't necessarily do something differently, of course, besides maybe get the vaccine if it's available. But I don't think at this point that I would go back. And I think, The reason for that is that because even though you've had all these setbacks and you've gone through something that's really challenging, it's challenged me in ways now that I can hopefully pass on in a positive way to other people. It made me a different type of athlete that I don't know that I could have been, you know, had I not been presented with this type of a challenge.
1: I think I've been asked, or I have been asked if, if I would go back and do things differently. And really, I don't know that there's much I could have done differently. The vaccines were really non-existent in 1998 um, when I came in contact with it. So I, I certainly agree with what you're saying. It's it's changed me, and I think it's changed me in mostly the positive ways. It, you, you deal with a lot of, you work through a lot of things, and most people, uh, I mean, everybody struggles with with, with, with certain things and everybody has their own challenges in life. But for a guy like myself, who really didn't know much about challenge, like I found out about through meningitis, it certainly has made me, uh, I think it's made me a better person and the, I think something else that happens, especially because of the age in which this, this affected you and I, and most people is that we are adaptable you know, the younger we are, the more adaptable we are. So we, we want to improve. We want to get back for, for me, the the carrot getting me there, getting, getting me to the finish line of returning was getting back into college. I was, it happened for me in February. I was in the hospital for 21 days and went home to my parents' house for the rest of the semester in that summer. But my objective was to get back into school that in the fall semester. So I did and it was it was a it was a really interesting journey getting back into college working through all the changes that that were upon me and and I didn't know anybody else that had meningitis you know I didn't know anybody else that was blind at least that that I could call up and say hey tell me about what it's like to do this or how how do you do that or so just working through finding the people finding uh, the solutions, finding different ways to do things, all the adaptations and things that were necessary. I was pretty excited about doing those things. And I think a lot of that was due to my family, who was a very strong influence um, for me and, and and still is to this day. And my faith and those things really is, and, and my friends at, at school really embraced me and helped me back through the the process. But it doesn't happen that way for everyone. And not everybody has the same, same results that I did, but that's kind of what my experience was like getting back, you know, for you, like getting back in the pool for me, is was getting, getting back into school.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, really for me, the hearing and, and the vision loss was really, you know, that, that was, that was really challenging.
1: Yeah. It, you know, it, I've, I've talked to people that have vision loss through my, through the podcast. And then I know somebody that I've talked to somebody that was, has been blind since birth and they wouldn't change it because they don't know any different and they think everything is just fine the way it is. And so that's just a mindset that you either got to be with or, or you're against. And it's probably not a good way to be against that because it's, it's unlikely to change. So you just got to, you know, make do with what you can and, and see the sunny side of things. And that's generally the way I try to do it too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: So let's see, we're, 15 or so years removed is that right from from meningitis you still have some lasting effects from that are things kind of the same as they were then or have things improved or or changed for the for the worse since 2005
0: um well my vision um has gotten progressively worse since i had bacterial meningitis and it, it has definitely gotten worse with with age my hearing um, damage has has pretty much never changed since um, since I had bacterial meningitis, um, but I do still have quite a few cognitive um, issues, um, mainly with memory, actually, um, and some you know kind of level of impairment in terms of remembering things, mainly in the short term. You know, so as you get physically stronger, you know, over the years and as time passes. Um, you know, some of the long term effects and some of the, um, you know, disability that people experience, that's, you know, that's never going to go away, like you said. Um, and unfortunately for me, the vision is definitely the part of it that has gotten worse with age. For me, yeah, for me specifically.
1: So we kind of have that in common, at least the vision element of things. Something else I think we have in common you got connected with the National Meningitis Association. And I don't think it was something that you immediately did. I mean, probably you wouldn't roll out of the hospital and, and, you know, go get involved with uh, an organization like that. But you decided at some point you were going to do that. What, what led you to the, to the NMA?
0: For me, um... I got my first phone call uh, while I was in college from Lynn Bozoff, who was the president of NMA at the time. Um, My college had run an article actually in the newspaper um, related to my swimming and to meningitis. And so Lynn had actually seen that article and gave me a call. And honestly, I wasn't really ready to really talk about. Meningitis, and I think it was for the reason of maybe just being a teenager at the time. It was kind of like I had it, you know. It derailed my my plans, but you know, I I'd kind of moved on at that point, you know. And and it wasn't something that I really necessarily was ready to go back and, and tell my story and kind of rehash and bring up, you know, all of those kind of feelings, you know, that you have after you kind of face something, you know, that's that kind of changes your life. Um and then so Lynn kind of accepted that and then a few years later after I had graduated college, so um it was in 2010, she called me again and asked me, you know, we're having a training for some new advocates and we'd really love it if you could come. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'll think about it and she called me again. And then she called me a third time. And by the third time I was like, you want to know what? Let's, let's jump in, you know, let's see what this is about. And, uh, you know, if anything, at least I can meet other people who went through something similar because, um, similar to, to your story. I mean, I was the only one that, you know, contracted meningitis at the time. Um, I'm also the only one, of my friends or family members, or most people you come in contact with. You know, the only one that's ever had it. Um, So I flew down to Atlanta for training in 2010. And ever since then, I've been doing everything I can to, you know, work with the NMA and to work in my community because the things I learned and the people I met, I realized that it's important to take what happened to me and to uh, make it a positive experience. And the only way I can do that is to share my story with other people, and to hopefully use that as an educational point, um, so that what happened to me doesn't happen to anyone else in my position, and it doesn't happen to anyone else's family.
1: Yeah, based on what I've what I know about you, you I mean, you're you've been pretty involved. You've done a lot of things with the NMA and been a been a very good advocate through panels and. And meeting with people, talking to people, telling your story, talking about obviously the importance of the vaccines. And the NMA has another uh, campaign called the 16 vaccine, which keys into the MenB vaccine. Is that right?
0: Uh, yeah, we we um, bring up the MenB vaccine, but also um, focus a lot on the second dose of the meningitis ACWY vaccine, as well as other Teen vaccines um, and why you know they're so important, um, and why the second dose is important of the meningitis vaccine is because um, you know as we know now, you know years after the first one was approved, is that the efficacy of that vaccination wears off over time, um, where it was initially thought to be you know have a high efficacy for ten years, we now know that that's really only about five. So the reason that it's such a big part of the 16 vaccine campaign is because we want families to know that you need to have the second dose at age 16 to 17 in that window in order to have full protection, whether you're going on to college, whether you're going to a technical school, or whether you're just going into the workforce, You know, it's really important that you have that protection for the full 10 years and you don't get that with just the first dose. So that's, that's really the crux of the 16 vaccine campaign is, is educating people that there is a second dose and, and their child or adolescent, you know, or you, if you're looking at the vaccine campaign is that, you know, you need to get it, you know, and a lot of 16, 17 year olds. And I think that that's one of the the, um, the hardest things is that, you know, when you're 16 or 17, you know, now you have your license and you have more independence. And, you know, the first thing on your mind isn't, well, you know, when's my next physical or when do I have to go back to get another vaccine? So that's really a hard group to reach. And I think that that's really a a huge, a huge part of what we're trying to do in that educational campaign. Um, and I love working with the NMA. I have learned an immense amount, um, you know, over my time with them as an advocate, um, and gotten a lot of opportunities to share my information with people where, you know, it could really make a difference. Um, and I briefly mentioned before with physicians and nurses and school nurses and, you know, people that kind of are those frontline, um, those frontline folks that are treating, you know, people, um, like us and, and I don't want another family to have to be in that position, you know, like we were in, um, if there is a vaccine that could potentially prevent it. And I'm also now working towards a career in public health, um, which I think is really a hundred percent, um, you know, motivated by my work with the NMA. I now have my master's in public health. Um, and the majority of the work I did there was, um, on vaccine, uh, vaccines and health disparities, um, and how we can reach populations um, that might be uninsured or underinsured, and how we can work with them to, you know, make sure that they get the um, well visit care and the vaccinations that they need. But really, now I'm I've moved on to um, legislative work, advocacy work in the policy realm, um, and I'm going to law school now um, to hopefully be able to work in public health law when I graduate.
1: Yeah, let's back up there just a little bit, Francesca. You again, you have such a compelling and uh, incredible story. So not only did you get meningitis when you're in high school and have suffer all the the setbacks that we've we discussed and probably many more we haven't even discussed. Uh you go on to college, you you knock that one out. You get your master's degree, so you keep you keep on moving in in public health, right? Is what you said. Mhm. And yeah. now in law school. And I think I think you're right. It sounds like you might be fueled by by, at least by, in part from your experience with meningitis and, and organization like the NMA to, to help fuel that, the fire to, to keep going there. That's incredible.
0: Well, thank you. And, and I think it's really, you know, it's also what I can, you know, offer to others and, you know, trying to make the world of public health a little bit better if I can. Um, I think, when we look towards things like policy and advocacy, I think that one of the things that just speaks volumes to people who are making these policy decisions is to have somebody tell their story and having that personal connection um, so that people know that there's a face behind, you know, these diseases or that there's a face behind this vaccination that could have potentially helped prevent it. I think that message is never lost, and I think that it's extremely important as we work towards improving, you know, public health policy across the country.
1: And to take another step forward in the vaccine world, you're the co-chair of the Vaccine Alliance of Connecticut. How'd you get connected with those guys?
0: Yes, yeah, so um, I am currently the co-chair of the Vaccine Alliance of Connecticut with my counterpart um, who works with the March of Dimes. Um, so we um, currently We are connected with other nonprofits um, in the area. Um, We're essentially a network of public health experts, organizations, um, parents, individuals, anyone really with a common goal of improving, you know, the health of our communities and the health of our schools and children through, you know, education, public health education and advocacy. And I actually got involved in that because of my advocacy work with the NMA. A few years back, I was introduced to uh, my co-chair currently, as well as others um, other organizations in public health in the state of Connecticut through some legislative work that I was doing. Um, and then they asked me if I would like to be the co-chair of this alliance that you know we were starting to to form in the area. Um, and so, of course, I said yes. And so for about two years, maybe a little bit less than two years, our coalition's really been working to gain public and legislative support for a lot of our healthy community initiatives, educating public, uh, the public about the benefits of vaccines and why they're so important. Um, and essentially the alliance kind of started not right before, but, you know, kind of right before COVID hit. Um, so I think now more than ever, it's, you know, been really beneficial to our community here in Connecticut to have kind of a coalition of, um, individuals, but also organizations that are, um, that really just want to, to, to bring that common goal of having a healthy, you know, community, whether that means a local community, your state, the country, you know, internationally, you know, that's kind of our goal here is to be a source of information if anyone has any questions or a parent has a concern um, to dispel any myths or anything like that, that surround the vaccine community, you know, and, and that's why I'm doing it. And it's, to me, it's just really important because I know we can say it over and over again, but if I can help just one family know that the meningitis vaccine is out there and that this is when they, you should get it. And this is the meningitis B vaccine. And if it's, you know, a couple families that it can, that it can help, um, just having that education, then it's, it's worth it.
1: Okay. Francesca, that is really some compelling, uh, a compelling story and some great information. Where is the best place for people to go to find out more about your story and about meningitis?
0: So we actually have um, a couple websites. Um, The first would be the National Meningitis Association's website. So they have a lot of great information. It also has advocate stories on it like mine, Um, but also some local information and state information if you're interested about what your state's policies may be. Um, And you can find them at nmaus.org. Um, we talked earlier about the 16 vaccine campaign. If you're interested in that, you can visit the 16. So that's the one six vaccine.org. And the last place we talked about was actually um, my work in Connecticut. So if you're interested in visiting uh, the Vaccination Alliance of Connecticut's website, it is vaccinatect.org.
1: Tremendous. Thanks a bunch, Francesca. Hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe. And for a complete transcript of this episode, connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.